Well, welcome to uh, the last of a five uh, series, five sermon series called Forever Family. And we started off, I did the first sermon and I talked about how you get in the family. And I said the way you're, you get into this forever family is uh, you're born into it. Uh, you're supernaturally born into the family when you put your faith in what Christ has done for you on the cross to forgive you of your sins. And when that happens, you are supernaturally brought into not only a relationship with God, but a relationship in, in the church. And the second sermon was uh, the implications of that in terms of the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of you. And Tommy preached that sermon and talked about how uh, the Holy Spirit is there to assist you for a lot of things, but one of those things is to assist you to exist inside the forever family. And so he talked about the fruit of the Spirit, which are things like love and joy and peace and kindness and gentleness. And these things are, are really things that help you live well with your fellow brothers and sisters uh, in the church. And then uh, Patrick preached the next two sermons, which really kind of get into, okay, I have, these, I have this new identity in the family. I now have resources uh, that are assisting me. And what do I do? What are my responsibilities? And Patrick preached a sermon on unity and a sermon on love. And so that was a, a great summary of, okay, well, how do I exist in the body of Christ uh, on a local church level? That of being in unity with people, but also uh, sacrificially uh, loving them. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound awesome to be a part of that kind of a family? And it is, but we also know that it's also hard. There's some obstacles <laughs> that we have to face as sinful human beings uh, trying to work out this unified, loving family that's been saved by the grace of the gospel and empowered by uh, the Holy Spirit. Even uh, Patrick's sermon last week, uh, we read in John 13 that Jesus used the, the image of the, the, the giving and receiving, the washing of stinky, dirty feet as an image to understand life inside the church. So it, that's hard. <laughs> that's not an image that uh, is, is a, a utopian kind of image. That's a real uh, kind of honest uh, reality check of what it's like to, to be in church, is to receive and to give uh, the cleansing of stinky, dirty feet. And then today's image, or one of, one of the images, is that of a race. That living the Christian life in Christian community is, is a race. And I don't know if you've tried to do any running, but running's hard. Did you notice that? <laughs> it's hard. There's a lot of obstacles uh, to running. Um, the weather's too hot. The weather's too cold, the weather's too windy or rainy, uh, there, there's, you know, I'm too tired to run, I'm too sore to run, um, I'm too sick to run, I don't have the right shoes or the right tights or the right gloves, uh, I can't find my headphones, right? I can't run if I don't have my headphones, uh, I don't like running alone. So I don't run, or, or just I'm out of shape, and when I run, I feel like passing out or throwing up. It's a lot of obstacles to running. It's hard. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying the Christian life lived in Christian community is like 
running. And there's a lot of obstacles to, to get over in order to do that. So what are these obstacles? How should I respond to the obstacles? And how does God help me to deal with the obstacles? Those are your three kind of big categories in this sermon. What are the obstacles? How should I respond to the obstacles? And how does God help me in overcoming these obstacles? So what are the obstacles? The obstacles are sin. Sin. Um, Hebrews 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So, it's race imagery. You're in a stadium. There's a crowd watching. It's describing one of the most exciting parts of a race, and that is the start of the race. I've, I've seen many, many, many starts uh, of races because my father uh, was a high school track coach. And I would go with him uh, on many, many, many uh, uh, track meets, and I also ran when I was in high school, and uh, he coached uh, some really good sprinters, uh, some of the best sprinters uh, in the state of Texas. I was not one of those sprinters. I was a sprinter, but I wasn't one of the best sprinters in the state of Texas. Um, but these sprinters uh, would warm up for their race for a full hour, and they would have uh, two pairs of warm-ups on, tops and bottoms, and they would jog and stretch for a full hour before they ran the 100 meters or the 200 meters of sprint relay. And this was in Texas, so it was warm-ish, at least in the spring. And they would just be totally wrung out and sweat because they were so warm. Uh, and they wanted that. They wanted to have their muscles at just that peak performance. And so they would be standing there behind the blocks. Their, their heat would be coming up. And the, 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 the starter is getting the starter pistol ready. And they've still at least got their, their bottoms on, uh, the, the, the bottom warm-ups. And they're just waiting to the very last minute. And, and then the, 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 the starter would say, runners to your marks. And then they would slip off uh, the warm-ups. And they would give them to me, 10-year-old Robert. And I would grab these sweaty warm-ups. And I would run them down to the finish line so that they could put them right back on when they finished so they could stay warm for the next event. And they, they never uh, forgot to take their warm-ups off before getting into the blocks, right? They knew that those warm-ups would encumber them. They would entangle them. They would cling to them. They would not be able to run the race that they wanted to run. They would not be able to get the time that they wanted to get if they were not to take off those warm-ups. And there's something similar going on here where he's saying, you, you've got to take off the sin, that's clinging to you. It's pulling you back. It's keeping you from running. It's keeping you from enduring in that race. And of course, in the Greco-Roman world, you ran naked. So they talk about throwing off everything that encumbers you. This, this is part of the picture that's um, now in your mind. So sorry, uh, but that's what's being communicated there. The, the Christian is throwing off Sin, this word translated sin, hamartia, um, it's an archery term, means miss, to miss the mark. And so that distance between the bullseye and wherever your arrow hits uh, on that target, that is hamartia, That's, that is uh, missing the mark. And so missing the mark of God's standard, missing the mark of God's law is sin. 
And so he's saying, throw that off, throw that sin off, because it's clinging to you, it's weighing you down, it's keeping you from being able to endure in the race. And so you hear that and you say, okay, that's, that's a lot harder said than done, right? Uh, that, 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 that is not easy. I mean, e- even the description as um, sin that, that clings so closely, it seems to indicate that it's nothing short of a miracle that we would a- be able to lay aside this kind of sin. The King James Version says it this way, the, the sin which doth so easily beset us. The Puritans often talked about besetting sins. Sins that just seem to be clinging. You, you would try to throw them off and like a boomerang, they just come right back and stick to you again. You throw them off and they come right back. They're clinging. They're weighing you down. They are your uh, besetting sin. I was reading uh, in a prayer book that I use as part of my daily devotion. It's called The Valley of Vision and it is full of Puritan prayers. And uh, this is something that I read this week. He, the, the person prays, defend me from assailing foes from evil circumstances. So he's praying for uh, attacks from the outside. And then he says, defend me from myself. My adversaries are part and parcel of my nature. They cling to me as my very skin. I cannot escape their contact. In my rising up and sitting down, they barnacle me. I don't know if you've ever seen barnacles on a boat. But it's a great image, right? Um, hard to get those off. They entice with constant baits. My enemy is within the citadel. Come with almighty power. Cast him out. Pierce him to death. And abolish in me every particle of carnal life this day. And so this idea of, 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 of getting rid of, of, of throwing off the sin that clings to us, that, that weighs us down. Uh, incredibly, incredibly challenging to do, which brings us to the next point. How, how should I respond? <laughs> how should I do this? Right? And two, two things in this text. One is to consider the great crowd of witnesses and to consider Christ. Consider the great cloud of witnesses and consider Christ. Um, this, the, the verse 1 d- described that this Colosseum with all these people that are cheering you on in your race. Uh, some of those are runners that have gone before you. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 11, sometimes it's called the Hall of Fame of Faith, and it's just name after name after name after name after name of people that have already run the race and made it to the finish line. And it talks both of their excruciating pain in the race, but also of their great victories in their race. And so it seems that when he says this in in chapter 12, he's describing all of these that have gone before you and have finished the race, and they're cheering you on. I've even experienced this uh, when I was uh, healthy enough to run half marathons, and those that uh, finished way ahead of me were oftentimes hanging around the finish line and cheering on other runners who were coming down into the finish line. And so this is what's described, those that have finished their race, and they're like, you can do this! We did it! Yes, there was pain, and yes, there was great victory. Don't give up! Endure! But not only those who are, have gone before us, but also the crowd of witnesses in our fellow believers in the church. 
they are also part of the crowd. When I ran track, whenever I was running my event, most of the track team was also in the, the stadium, and they were uh, cheering me on. But then when I was not running and my other people, you know, other people on the track team were running, I was in the stadium, and I was cheering people on in their event. The church is to be much like this. We're both running and we're also in the crowd, encouraging one another as we run the race. Uh, there have been multiple people that have asked uh, about how do, how do I serve in the church during COVID, right? Uh, especially if, if uh, they're unable to, to be here in person. Like, how, how do I serve? And um, one of the most important ways to serve right now is to encourage, to encourage people. If there's ever been a time when people needed encouragement, is now to pray for people, text people, reach out to people. And, and we, we both, we, we need encouragement, right? But, but it's like this, we're running and, needing, and we need people to encourage us, but then we need to get in the crowd and we need to encourage those who are running. So how do you throw off the sin that clings to you, that weighs you down? You consider the crowd of witnesses. But you also consider Christ and the race that He ran for you. Look at Hebrews 12, 2. He says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against Himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. So, he describes Jesus' running technique. Think of this. Jesus is in, he's at the starting line. He's getting ready to, to, uh, to run his race. You're like, hey, Jesus, what's your event? He's like, oh, my event is death by crucifixion for the sins of the world. That sounds like a really hard event, Jesus. He's like, oh, yeah, it is. There's a lot to endure. How do you do it, Jesus? He says, I think about the finish line. I think about the finish line. Really? What's at the finish line? Joy. For the joy set before me, I'm able to endure this cross. Really? What's so full of joy at the finish line? Right? And so a couple of things. One is, He's saving you and me from sin. <laughs> he knows that's the only way that we could be saved from sin. And we could be reconciled to God and to one another. And so there's great joy at the finish line. But probably even more than that, and what the text says, is the joy is fellowship with the Father. He's going to be at the right hand of the Father. And he's going to be in fellowship with the Father, in authority over sin, death, and hell. And he's like, the joy of that finish line is what I'm thinking of so I can endure the cross. And the writer of Hebrews says, Christian, do that too. Think about the finish line. Think about the finish line. In order to endure the struggle, the suffering that is part of your race. Now think about your race. You're at the starting line and you're thinking about what could be ahead, right? You're, you're called to live in unity in the church. That's hard. You're, you're called to live sacrificially in, in, in loving, 
relationships in the church. That's hard. You're, you're called to give generously of your financial resources. That's hard. Uh, you, you, you're called to sacrificially forgive others when they hurt you and to receive forgiveness when, when you hurt them. That's hard. You're asked to make the sacrifices required to make disciples of, of, of other people. That's hard. There's a lot to endure. The, the sacrifices required to remain sexually pure. That's hard. The, the sacrifices that, that might be required of you to move away somewhere for the cause of the gospel, maybe away from family. That's hard. The sacrifice you might be making to become a Christian and know that, that your family is going to be persecuting you. That's hard. The, the, the fact that your, your race might include persecution, torture, maybe death because of your Christianity, that's hard. You say, how, how, how am I supposed to run that race? Think about the finish. Think about the finish line. Think about the finish line of, of, of meeting Christ at the finish line, of being in fellowship for eternity with your brothers, your sisters in Christ. Think about the finish line. Look at Jesus' running technique. Follow the pattern of His running technique. So consider the crowd of witnesses and consider Christ. <laughs> it's so interesting how the writer, you know, it, 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 he, it's almost like he expects us to go, but it's so hard. And the writer in verse 4 says, In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Does a little Jesus flex on you, you know? He's like, consider Christ, consider what He's endured, and, 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 and let that encourage you, right? Let, let that give you the strength of heart that you need to endure and to throw off sin that clings to you and weighs you down. You know, this considering Christ and considering the crowd of witnesses is what you get when you come to church. That's why, I mean, it's really one of the Reasons we, we need to, to gather together and, and why those that are not able to, to gather safely yet, they're longing for the day when they'll be able to come back together, right? Because this is what we're doing. We're considering the crowd of witnesses, all of us here, fellow runners who've stepped off the track for, for a moment to be encouraged in the race, but also we're considering Christ anew. We're singing of Christ. We're, we're, we're hearing the Christ preached from the Word. We're seeing Christ in the breaking of the bread and the taking of the cup. And as we consider the crowd of witnesses and we consider Christ, it's, it's strengthening us so that we can continue to endure in the race. Now, that's how I should be responding, but what does God do to help me? This is the third kind of category of the sermon here. What, what, is, what is God doing <laughs> to help me throw off the sin that in, that's encumbering me in my race and to run and endure to the finish. And this starts Hebrews 12, 5. It says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons or children? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves." And chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. 
shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what does God do to help me in my race, to help me throw off the sin and to endure? He disciplines me. He disciplines me. Uh, He's shifting from race imagery to uh, uh, child-rearing imagery. Uh, There's two basic components of raising children. Uh, ESV in verse 6 uses the words disciplines and chastises. Uh, King James Version says chasteneth and scourgeth. Some great old English words, but basically it's saying you raise children by instructing them and spanking them. Literally, that's what it's saying, instructing them and spanking them. Now, Uh, This is not a sermon about child-rearing and spanking is good or bad or whatever, so I'm not going to go down that road, but if you want to talk about it later, I'm I'm happy to do that. But just know that is what the text is saying. And I was talking with Patrick Grafton Cardwell after the the, the sermon, and he's got his Greek New Testament out, and he's like, yep, that's what it says. Instruct them and spank them. Um, And at the very least, anyone who has children knows you have to instruct them, but then you have to give consequences when they don't follow the instruction. For, for some reason, children, you just can't tell them what to do, and then they just do it perfectly. No child does this. <laughs> there, there has to be some kind of consequences to, to help them, motivate them uh, to follow the instruction. Now, he's saying God does this. God does this. How does He do it, and why does He do it? How does He do it? And why does he do it? Let's talk about the why first. He does it for a couple of reasons. One, so we can throw off the sin that's clinging to us and weighing us down. This sin hurts us. It hurts the church. It hurts the witness of the church. It's a threefold hurt. It's serious. Sin is serious. I mean, if Jesus is on the cross dying because of sin, it is serious. If the remedy is the death of the divine Son of God. You know sin is serious. And so, so it, it is something that God takes very seriously, and He knows it hurts us, it hurts the church, it hurts the witness of the church. But the main motivation being d- discussed, in especially this passage I just read, is He does it because He loves us. He loves us. Verse 6, the, the, the Lord disciplines the one He loves. A permissive parent is not a loving parent. It's not. I, I, I know intuitively it kind of feels like it for me. If I love you, I just let you do whatever you want. I don't get into your business. That's not love. Nor is an authoritarian parent. <laughs> That's not love either. But a, but a loving, involved parent that, that is training their child through instruction and through disciplinary consequences. That, that is loving, and this is what God does. And He does it because He loves us. Now, how does He do it? Right? That's the real question. How, how does God do this? Three ways, at least. One's in the text, and then two more I want to mention. 
Um, but the three ways are hardship, through the Scriptures, and through the local church. Hardship, Scriptures, local church. So hardship is in, it's in the text, right? Verse 7, uh, ESV says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. So he's saying enduring suffering is, is, is a means by which God is instructing you. He, that, that word translated discipline is the instruction word, not the spanking word, okay? Um, NIV says it this way, endure hardship as discipline, right? And so God, God is instructing us, He's training us through the means of hardship. I mean, who would, who would we be without hardship? I mean, just think about it. If we didn't have to work hard at something or lift heavy objects or bear up under difficult relationships, who would we be? I, I, I don't know if any of you ever watched The Crown, um, but the, the children of the queen, they're horrible. They're pathetic. I, I get so frustrated with them. Why are they such a mess? They haven't had any hardship. As opposed to like the World War II generation. There's a lot of talk about the World War II generation. Why, why are, are these uh, such hardworking builders of institutions? And Because they've suffered. They've had hardship, namely World War II, but, but other things as well. And that hardship is, has been used in their lives to, to build them up as human beings. We've been in hardship recently, right? Over the last several months with, with COVID-19 and, and, and lots of political instability, it's, it has been a, a time of hardship, and that hardship has been instructing us, hasn't it? I mean, it, for some of us, it's, it's revealed our need for relationship, right? Or, or it's revealed that we have some addictions that have been kind of under the surface, and, and now in the midst of months and months of this hardship, those addictions are no longer under the surface. They're way on top of the surface. Or for others, it's, it's grown our capacity for prayer and study of Scripture, or, or grown our, our commitment to intentionally relate with others. Like, there's been some good things that have occurred. But God has used that hardship to instruct us, to train us. That is, if you endure hardship as instruction, right? That's the command there. And so don't just say, ah, it's just COVID. I mean, I'll, I'll be an amazing human being after COVID, but now I'm, I'm just this way. No, allow it to be used of God to instruct you, right? Endure hardship as this training, as instruction, and coupled with that, heart, hardship is this uh, idea of the Scriptures being a way that God disciplines us. Look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 and 16. This is on the screen. It says, "...and how from childhood you, Timothy, have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture..." is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So Paul's explaining to Timothy why the Scripture is so amazing, and he first says it's so amazing because it points to Jesus and it leads you to a place where you can place faith in Jesus and be saved. But then he says, and it does this process, this, this, this process in the life of uh, the Christian. So it teaches the Christian, 
So it's, it's instructing you on, on how to live and who God is. It's also um, for reproof or rebuke, we might say. And so it's not just teaching you new information, it's also rebuking you about certain parts of your life that are not lining up, right? A.K.A. sin. And then correction. It doesn't just leave you in the state of rebuke, but it lovingly helps you to turn from that sin and to begin to turn toward righteousness, which is the last part, which is training in righteousness. And so it's describing how Scripture works itself out in our lives. And so it's, it's disciplining us. You're being disciplined right now. God's disciplining you through the Word. There's none of us here as children of God who, who don't need to be disciplined this morning. None of us are perfect. And so God is lovingly disciplining us through this Scripture so that we can not only hear what He has to say, but heed what He's saying. Don't be the spoiled child who hears what the parent says and goes, Yeah, yeah, I don't care. Yeah, yeah, pastor, I know you said the Word says we should repent from sin. I don't care. I'm do my own thing. Don't do that. Don't do that. Hear it and heed it. Because what, what is the loving Father to do, right? If through hardship and through Scripture, it's not working, right? Well, He disciplines through the local church. This is the third one. Third way that He helps us with the sin that clings to us and weighs us down. Um, Jesus describes the discipline that goes on in the local church in Matthew 18. And He describes it this way, verse 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Okay, so... Brother or sister in Christ, they're, they're, they're in the church, they're going through the normal, just daily hardship and hearing Scripture and obeying Scripture, but there's some sin that's clinging, it's weighing down, and, and the particular brother in Christ, sister in Christ, do, doesn't see it, he's blind to it. And so another brother or sister in Christ lovingly comes, just the two of them, doesn't, doesn't broadcast it to the whole church, doesn't talk to other people about it, just comes to that one, one-on-one, has a conversation and says, I, I see this sin and it's clinging to you, it's weighing you down, it's hurting our relationship, it's hurting the church, hurting the witness of, to the world. You, you need to repent from that. And that's discipline. That's partly how, how the loving Father disciplines us. He does, doesn't send a dream. He, he doesn't send a, a big voice from on high. He sends a fellow sinner, a fellow brother and sister in Christ, to come and, and to, to call us out in love. Right? And you say, well, it would be great if it worked that way because people won't always listen. Well, Jesus thought of that. Verse 16 of Matthew 18. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Jesus says, okay, you do the one-on-one. They're not willing to listen. You should get more people involved. Not a lot of people, but just a few. One or two more. This also protects the accused because if the accuser is off the mark, and they can't find anyone else to, to join them in their accusation, then maybe the accuser is the one who's doing something wrong. Not always, but it's likely. 
But if the accuser goes to some other brothers and sisters in Christ and say, hey, I'm trying to have this conversation with so-and-so, and they're not listening, and the other two are like, yeah, that is a problem. I've been meaning to talk to them, but I don't have the courage to do it. But I'll do it with you. And now two or three of you are going to the person and saying, this is really a problem. Now, again, this is not someone who, who is, is, is saying, I, I want to change, I'm, I'm struggling to change. This is someone who's like, I'm not interested, I am going to remain in this un- unrepentant sin, I'm out of here, right? And so the church is now lovingly, first one-on-one, then two or three-on-one, trying to have this conversation. Why? Because of, of love, right? Of love. It, sin hurts the person, hurts the church, hurts the witness to the world. You say, okay, well, that sounds good, but what if they still won't repent? Well, Jesus thought of that too. Verse 17 of Matthew 18 says, If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. And there's that verse that we love to quote, verse 20. You know, two or three are gathered in my name, and there's the context. It's church discipline. Um, so it's a situation where someone is so stubbornly unrepentant in uh, clear-cut sin against Scripture, against God, and one person went to them, and they're like, not interested in repenting. Two or three more went to them, not interested. And now you bring it to the church. And the church is not just, you know, the Christian friends that you like at the moment. It's an identifiable body of local believers. And this is the passage we would point to to say, this is why we have membership so that we can identify who is a part of the local body that is Mercy House, right? And so Jesus says there, there's some identifiable local body that, that, that this, this person is brought before, and the, and the church then has some options, right? It, it doesn't mean that you're moving to excommunication uh, right away. You may say, let's send more people. Let's send a few more to have that conversation. Or the church might say, Let's pray for the next month for this person. So this, this, is a, this, this process being described in Matthew 18 usually is months and months long. It's not like a one-week process. But Jesus does say that if that person refuses to repent, again, of, of, of this blatant, unwilling to repent kind of, of, of sin that has come to the attention of the, of the church, that you can excommunicate them, Right? Now, what that does not mean is he's not saying you can send them to hell. <laughs> that's, that, that's up to God. Right? God, God. God is in charge of who, who goes to hell, who doesn't go to hell, all that stuff. right? But what the church does have is what is sometimes called declarative power, where we say as best we know, a person is a Christian or is not a Christian. We don't know for sure. We're not God. But we have been given the power to bind and loose. That's partly what he's talking about. There's been authority given to the local church. And so when we baptize someone, we're using declarative power. We're saying, as best we know, this person's a Christian. And so we're going to baptize them as a mark on them that they are a Christian. They're part of this local body of Christians. So whenever I baptize someone, I say, based on your profession of faith, 
I baptize you, my brother or my sister, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm saying we've, we've listened to your profession of faith, and as best we can dis- discern, you're a Christian, and we're going to baptize you. Now, in Matthew 18, the church is using the declarative power to say, as best we can figure out, you're not a Christian. We don't know for sure, but the way you're behaving would indicate you're not a Christian, and that hurts you, and it hurts the church, and it hurts the witness of the church. And, and so we're going we're gonna, to, Jesus says, treat them like a Gentile or a tax collector. Now, what does he mean by that? It basically means treat them as if they're not a Christian. And so it doesn't mean that they can't come to worship usually, but it does mean they can't serve, can't lead, can't take communion. Because communion is a sign of of being a Christian. You take communion, you're saying, I'm a Christian. The church is letting you take communion. We're saying, we think you're a Christian, right? And so this, this again, is, is the, one of the ways, not the only way, but one of the ways that the Father disciplines those He loves. Now, how do we respond to this? Several ways. Well, one, one way is to put your faith in Christ, the one who ran the race that you could have never run. You could never run a race that would save you. That's why Jesus endured the cross. That's why His race included enduring the cross. And He did it for the joy that was set before Him. The joy of saving you from your sin. Bringing you into relationship with Him. And the joy of, of Him also being in fellowship with His Father at the right hand of the Father. And so if you have not yet placed your faith in the one who ran the race for you, do that today. Put your faith in Christ, the one who has run on your behalf. This is how you get started on the race, you know. Now those of us that we have put faith in Christ and we are on the race, what do we do? Throw off the sin. Throw off the sin that's entangling us, that's clinging to us, that, that is um, weighing us down. This is partly what we, what we do regularly as we come together. We, we consider uh, the, the crowd of witnesses. We consider Christ and the race that He ran on our behalf, and, and it motivates us, it empowers us to throw off sin, to confess it and repent from it so that we can run the race with endurance. And so whatever is kind of at the, at the front of your mind and heart this morning that the Lord is bringing in, in, in terms of maybe apathy or anger or bitterness or, or, or addictions or what, whatever, to bring those to God in prayer this morning and asking His forgiveness and asking for grace to repent, to debarnacle you from that sin that is clinging to you, that is weighing you down. And then thirdly, to join the church. If you have not yet joined this local body, I want to encourage you to do it. This is part of how you run the race well. Running the race well is not just kind of floating around as an individual Christian, just kind of hanging with whoever you like at the moment. Running the race well is committing yourself to a local body, an identifiable local body that is full of sinners, including the pastor. And it's not easy, and, and there are, are many challenges, but that's part of the race. 
It's part of the race. And so we consider Christ, we consider the crowd of witnesses as a, a believing body on a regular basis to encourage each other on the race. The, if, if you're interested in membership, um, it was mentioned earlier, but the way that you kind of get that ball rolling is you come to a Meet Mercy House class and you find out about the church, the history, the beliefs, what we're about as a church, and cons- we consider you, you consider us. And at the end of that process, um, this, this is when membership can happen, but it can't happen until you come to that class. And so I think they mentioned it earlier, February 27th, also April 10th, uh, are two of the next classes. If you are interested, and you can ask me or, or Megan or Lois uh, as well. When we come to this table, uh, we are reminded and encouraged <laughs> in our race because of the race that Jesus ran for us. On the night before the end of his race, he took bread, he broke it, he blessed it, he gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He wanted the church every week to consider the race that he ran the cross that he endured for the joy set before him. In the same way, he took the cup. After he blessed it, he gave it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Not only did he want us to consider Christ and the race that he has run for us, but he wanted us to consider the many that we are now a part of this covenant community that's been made possible through what Christ did on the cross. As we consider that great cloud of witnesses and we consider the race that Christ has run, it encourages us in our race. So if you are a Christ follower, we want to encourage you uh, to to be a part of uh, this meal, uh, family dinner, which primarily is for the local body to come together uh, around this meal. And it, and it marks us as we take it. We're, we're looking at each other going, yeah, you too, you too, you too. And, and yes, we have you know, guests, uh, other Christians for family dinner that can take this along with us. Um, but if you've not yet trusted in Christ and you know today's not your day, you're just like, I, I got a lot more questions, I wanna talk more, uh, we're gonna encourage you during this time not to take communion. Um, but to think about what you've heard, pray about it, and hopefully reach out and talk more about it. I'll be around after the service and be happy uh, to talk more. So let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful um, for the race that you've run for us. We could have never run it. could have never endured it. could have never saved ourselves. But you did. And you endured the cross. And you made it to the finish line. And so, Father, I, I, just, I pray, Lord, you, would you encourage each of us? We, we are on this race, and it, it has definitely been a hardship for many. Uh, it is in general, but really over these last months, it, is, it has been weighty. And it has felt like sins that maybe we even thought were, were long dead have just re- reared up their ugly heads again. And They've just clung to us, Lord God. So God, give us grace, the grace that's given to us at the cross to 
to repent from sin, to throw off that which is weighing us down and helping us to run with endurance uh, because of the joy set before us. And so would you bless this bread and cup in our time together as we worship you, uh, as we consider the crowd of witnesses, as we consider Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.